This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how is your week going so far, sir? Uh, Good if I can fade things properly. (laughs) Uh, Who would have thought that Bernie Sanders would have the same misogyny problem that Jeremy Corbyn had uh, with (laughs) anti-Semitism? It's very surprising, isn't it? And it's really surprising, especially after his horrible misogyny problem that he had with the Hillary Clinton I'll never forget what he did to that woman in 2016. (laughs) Just horrible, wasn't it? The way that he supported her after she won the nomination was awful, truly awful. Today, the United States has dominated the world with a military steeped in the traditional warfare of the 20th century. But as the 21st dawned, and in the wake of 9-11, it became apparent that concerns about non-state actors and their perceived networks could be the new adversaries of the new century. This meant new tactics. This meant new warfare, irregular warfare, far different from the traditional version of defeating your enemies and with nothing but overwhelming force. A new strategy was needed not to only target enemy military forces, but also aim at the hearts and minds of the population to offer them an alternative. This irregular warfare would then be added to the United States' traditional warfare, creating an arsenal that the U.S. hoped could maintain America's dominance, imperial dominance, of the entire globe for at least another half century. This idea of full-spectrum dominance from traditional 20th century war to irregular 21st century confrontations didn't work out as planned and for a very good reason. We'll find out why it didn't work and what it reveals about America's history of imperial intentions when we speak with historian Maria Ryan, author of Full Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare, and the War on Terror. Maria is assistant professor in American history at the University of Nottingham. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, This week's question from hell, which you can answer by Thursday's show is, oh wait, What do you think the CIA has been up to this whole time? I know. What has the CIA been up to this whole time? Those sneaky little bastards. Alex, did any of the uh, this week's guests send us a book to give away? Or you want to give away a piece of merchandise? What do you Uh, want? I was thinking about giving away the This Is Hell uh, trucking industry professional cap. Uh, Trying to push these caps on everyone. They're really good. It's the only hat I wear. I saw a listener wearing it at uh, This Is Hell office hours this last Friday. So, yeah, they're really great. You can find them at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can see the trucker hat right there. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com. Again, this week's question from hell for you, our listening audience, is what the hell has the CIA been up to this whole time? What the hell has the CIA been up to this whole time? This week's winner gets a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Let's see. Uh, You know, when we were doing the show live for four hours on Saturday mornings, instead of doing the show daily Monday through Friday for an hour as we are now, uh, one of the problems when we were doing the show back then was that I would never get a chance to sit down and actually think, really think about what the guest had just said on air. By the time one was done, one guest was done, 
the next was being put on hold for the following interview and you know we'd have to move on and I didn't really get a chance to contemplate what the guest had said and I'd go home after the show exhausted from doing four hours of live radio without any interruption and pass out for a few hours for the next few days I'd get these dreamlike snippets of the show popping up in my head that would like remembering a dream make me question if what I remembered had actually happened or was it all part of some cloudy fantasy all of a sudden in the middle of the day or night before I went to sleep or at any time really I'd get this really clever idea an epiphany that made me think for a moment that I'm really really smart and then I'd be wondering wait is that my clever idea or did someone say that on the show last week now, with the show only one hour, I can actually spend the next 23 hours thinking about what our guest pointed out, what they revealed, what they argued, what they said, to, to contemplate it and examine it and rethink it and investigate it deeper, to give it the thoughtful attention it deserves rather than simply moving on to the next conversation and forgetting what had just happened. And in that way, the discussions we are having on the show now are having a far greater impact on me because I'm not churning out an assembly line of interviews anymore just one at a time and i'm hoping one at a time with more thoughtfulness than i was allowed to in the old format will make the show a lot better the old format was an endurance event a marathon now the show was more of a sprint a dash to the finish line where at the end i can take a deep breath and actually think about the guest i just spoke with and their point of view that's exactly what happened after yesterday's show with our guest Daniel Denver, author of All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. And he's also the host of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Radio. You can find The Dig at thedigradio.com. Dan pointed out that the idea of the illegal immigrant was created by those racists who hate immigrants when being anti-immigrant was a very unpopular stance to take in a nation filled with immigrants and a statue of liberty that welcomes huddled masses. These nativists, in particular, hated non-white immigrants, especially the kind who crossed the Mexico border. So they came up with all sorts of rules for migration from across the border, despite the border actually crossing the migrants first. This created people who were not entering the U.S. in the right way, according to the anti-immigrant crowd, and thus Mexican immigrants, with rules that only applied to them exclusively, became illegals, became criminals. Republicans who were anti-immigrant then could argue that they are not actually anti-immigrant, but anti-crime. They had created cover for racist anti-immigrants who had made laws exclusively for one group of people to criminalize them in a way others were not. Conservatives didn't mind as it gave them cover for their own racism, but it still wasn't quite flying with liberal Democrats yet. Then the Clintons came along. Ever since the beginning of this radio show, we have been pointing out the shortcomings of many, many of the Clinton policies. Back in 1996, we were already complaining about the Telecommunications Act of 1996, how it would lead to more and more consolidation of the media and the selling off of the digital bandwidth, as they were calling it at the time, for $70 billion to corporations who were guaranteed to make trillions was a ripoff. We were already hearing from guests who were upset at the mass incarceration program that was Clinton's crime omnibus legislation. And we're hearing from those who knew welfare reform was really about making it harder and harder for the poor people of this country 
to continue living. And there was NAFTA and you know, turning their backs on labor to prove they loved the bosses just as much as Republicans did. All of this Clintonian triangulation, so clever, it would steal votes from Republicans by convincing them that Democrats could be just as conservative as Republicans. See, we can be just as law and order as Republicans. We'll even lock up way more people than ever before, even incentivize incarceration by privatizing it and making it for a profit because the Clintons believe what conservative Republicans believed. The markets and profits can solve everything. When it came to immigration, the Clintons wanted to prove they could be all law and order, just like their Republican counterparts, so they happily embraced the far-right framing of illegal immigrants based on racist laws that target migrants coming across Mexico's border. This wouldn't satisfy the far-right anti-immigrant crowd, as the Clintons had hoped, however. Instead, the anti-immigrant crowd wanted more and more and more. They wanted the end of all immigration into the United States, and the Clintons didn't understand that didn't know or maybe they just didn't care but what it did do is it allowed the rise of the far right their anti-immigrant beliefs had been normalized they were having victories as more and more of them were being kicked out of the country more of them them underlined them were being kicked out of the country who cares if families were being broken up they're immigrants and they shouldn't be here in the first place go back to where you came from Clintonian triangulation led to the rise of the far right because, like Republicans, they gave cover to hatred, normalizing it under the idea of a crime, a crime that was not based on justice, but ethnicity. The Clintons sucked. They thought they were so clever in selling out what were traditional Democratic Party values to win over who they saw as Reagan Republicans, independent conservatives who would vote for them. Who knows? Maybe it worked in getting Clinton two terms in office. Maybe he won both times because a third party candidate in the form of Ross Perot threw the elections of the Democrats and the triangulation didn't do anything but sell out Democrats and their values. Maybe it's one, maybe it's the other, maybe it's both. But their legacy would be giving cover for the rise of the far right, coddling them, buying their dog whistles and blowing loud enough for all reactionaries to hear them saying, don't worry, we're anti-immigrant racists too. Just be cool about it. And the idea of illegal immigrant and coming into the country the right way continues today within the Democratic Party, having been thoroughly supported throughout the deportation machine of the Obama administration. So next time someone asks, where did all these neo-fascists come from? Tell them, well, it all started with the far right being racist anti-immigrants and then the Clinton's co-optation through triangulation. And don't forget to add, this is hell coming up on this week's show. The United States military is the master of traditional warfare, the kind with big 20th century budgets. But in the face of the 20 of the 21st century's new adversaries, the U.S. needed something more to continue global dominance. We'll find out what that was and have listeners feedback and your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what has the CIA been up to lately? What the hell has the CIA been up to lately? The person with the best answer to this week's question gets a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can find on our website, thisishell.com, when you click on the word support. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. 
With U.S. power being challenged by the advent of globalization, it was uncertain how any nation could continue the kind of dominance the U.S. displayed in our post-Cold War world. What they came up with was full-spectrum dominance. And here to explain to us exactly what that is, historian Maria Ryan is author of Full-Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare and the War on Terror. Welcome to This Is Hell, Maria. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Maria is assistant professor in American history at the University of Nottingham, and she is also author of 2010's Neoconservatism and the New American Century. You write the U.S. military and indeed the whole of the U.S. government reoriented the country's early 21st century national security strategy to encompass a concept that came to be known as irregular warfare. So what is meant by irregular warfare? How different is it from warfare in the past? Well, I think the easiest way to understand the concept of irregular warfare is to think about Vietnam, and in particular to think about the Viet Cong. So the Viet Cong uh, was basically a force of guerrillas. We're, we're not talking about another nation state wearing military uniforms and, and using tanks and airplanes. They were really um, a guerrilla army. And irregular warfare, I think, is distinguished by three things. First of all, it's the agent, it's who is doing the fighting. And in irregular warfare, your adversary is just as likely to be a non-state actor, like a guerrilla group, as it is a state actor. Secondly, irregular warfare is distinguished by the methods that are used. So the methods are usually unconventional military tactics, indirect military tactics, like uh, sabotage, hit and run tactics, psychological warfare. And thirdly, irregular warfare is distinguished by the focus of the operations. So in an irregular conflict, the focus of the operations is usually the general public, ordinary people. It's not so much about trying to physically occupy a particular space as it was. If you think back to World War II, um, the Allies and the Nazis in World War II were trying to physically control the space in Europe. But in an irregular warfare, the, the objective is really to try and win the hearts and minds of ordinary people, because if you can win their hearts and minds, then the guerrillas can stop relying on ordinary people for support. So the focus of operations in, in irregular warfare is just ordinary people. So those are the three main ways in which it's different to conventional warfare. How much of a threat is globalization to U.S. primacy? Why is it a threat? Why was there this sense that uh, full-spectrum dominance was needed in the face of globalization? Because the way in which a lot of people may understand globalization here in the United States is that it was a project to expand U.S. primacy and supremacy around the world, maybe through economics or through trade. So how much of a threat and how can globalization be a threat to U.S. primacy. Well, I agree with you. I think it started out as a project to expand U.S. dominance. But but I think the reason it, it uh, was viewed as, as threatening in a security sense was really because of 9-11 and the, the kind of lessons that U.S. policymakers learned, rightly or wrongly, um, from 9-11. So I, I think um, policymakers realized that although the U.S. had awesome conventional military power. It was by far the most powerful country in the world in, in a conventional military sense. That conventional power had not protected it on 9-11. So the US was still very vulnerable to an asymmetric uh, attack. And policymakers realized, I think, that 
globalization had empowered non-state actors like Al-Qaeda in new ways. It's not that non-state actors didn't exist before, but that they had been empowered in new and quite deadly ways as a result of the revolution in, in information technology. So um, these, network, these networks like Al-Qaeda, they were now transnational, they were globalized. It was very easy for them to travel and use the internet to spread propaganda. They could take refuge in weak and failing states like Afghanistan. So I think the 9-11 attack was seen as um, the epitome of this, uh, and it really kind of um, demonstrated to US policymakers, I think, that the country had an Achilles heel, if you like, in terms of its national security, that it had this awesome, overwhelming conventional military power, but actually that was no use against these um, globalized non-state actors that had been empowered as a result of the information revolution. Right, that traditional warfare, that was not any use in uh, combating the attacks on 9-11, but the United States, as you point out, Donald Rumsfeld and many others, knew yeah. that these non-state uh, actors were becoming more and more powerful. So why was the United States surprised? Why was the United States unprepared when they clearly knew that this kind of irregular warfare was going to be happening, in, or this kind of attacks of 9-11 might be happening in the near future? Mm. What, kept them, what kept them from making that transition from traditional war warfare to irregular warfare earlier? Well, I, I, th I think that um, although you're right that, you know, the Al-Qaeda network emerged in the late 1990s, it had really been targeting U.S. interests in the Middle East. And I think most senior policymakers just, just hadn't really thought of the idea that there could be such um, an enormous attack on the U.S. homeland. And it, it was it was so unprecedented. And I think it's it's true that policymakers were kind of beginning to understand the impact of globalization on, on international security. But I think it wasn't really, unfortunately, until 9-11 um, that they really began to ask more serious questions about how well prepared the U.S. was to, um, first of all, secure itself, but also to preserve U.S. primacy, I think, um, it, in a, in a globalized world where all of a sudden I think they, policymakers realized that um, other nation states were not the only serious threats, that actually these um, transnational non-state actors could actually pose a very serious threat to the U.S. homeland. And I think it, it kind of, uh, it wasn't really until after 9-11 that, um, that policymakers began to ask those really fundamental questions. You write that the most distinctive feature of irregular warfare was its focus on co-opting the population. Is irregular warfare then more humane than the brute force applied prior to uh, irregular warfare during traditional warfare? Is co-opting their allegiance any less brutal on the yeah. population it targets? Well, ultimately, I think the answer is no. But I think... Um, Certainly at the beginning of an irregular campaign, um, it's, it, you know, it, it does appear as though some of the techniques have something in common with all, almost kind of humanitarian intervention. Really, it appears to be a much more liberal endeavor than regular conventional war. But I, I think... Um, the right way to understand some of these techniques like winning hearts and minds and stabilization operations is that they are actually um, tactics of a particular method of warfare. And the ultimate objective in warfare is always to assert control. And I think even when policymakers are using, are turning to irregular methods, the objective is still to try to assert control. 
And what so often happens, I mean, we, we saw this in Iraq, is that um, if ordinary people who uh, are, are not susceptible um, to the narrative that, let's say, the U.S. is trying to sell them, that then actually the, the irregular campaign becomes more and more dependent on military force. It becomes more dependent on hard power. So what happens when, within irregular warfare, humanitarian aid, like building schools or hospitals, is used as a way to win over hearts and minds? What happens to that kind of push towards better roads, better infrastructure, when in reality it seems to be nothing more than a weaponized tactic in irregular warfare? Mm. Well, um, I I think what... What often happens in an irregular warfare scenario is that there isn't an awful lot of long-term thought that's given to these kinds of projects, the stability projects, for example. Um, They're really done uh, on a short-term basis to try to win hearts and minds in the short term. And the the idea is that if you can co-opt the ordinary people, then, um, and you can uh, give them a vision of a future that they might want to buy into, then they will stop cooperating with insurgents or, uh, you know, guerrillas, soldiers, for example. But what I think um, often happens, uh, and we can see this most especially in Iraq, I think, is that the U.S. is is not necessarily able to offer um, an attractive narrative that most Iraqis wanted to buy into. And so the problem then is if, if you can't co-opt people with your narrative and with your stability operations, then actually you become more and more reliant on military force. Sorry, my button went out there for a second. You also talk about how uh, they... The... These reforms were enthusiastically supported by the leaders of state and USAID, though not by Congress. This is when you look at the attempt to mobilize an interagency response to irregular security Mm -hmm. challenges and focuses on the intellectual, financial, organizational and policy reforms at the Department of State Mm -hmm. and USAID. Nevertheless, they led to some genuine interagency cooperation on the ground. But this came at the cost of making state and USAID subservient to U.S. security policy. What happens when state and USAID become subservient to U.S. security policy. What happens to the security complex of the United States that includes state and USAID? Right. So I think it's um, it's long been the case that foreign aid is there to serve broader national security objectives. But I think um, this becomes particularly overt as a result of this attempt to develop an irregular warfare capability. And so what you see is that uh, USAID is trying to actually align itself with Department of Defense goals. And the same thing happens at the State Department as well. There is a greater emphasis on um, issues related to weak and failing states and the need for stability operations. Um, and so you, you see these civilian agencies increasingly becoming securitized uh, and rather than following their own independent objectives, uh, they're really kind of being led by the Department of Defense, which which seems quite problematic, I think, because then I think people become more distrustful of uh, humanitarian aid, uh, become more distrustful of uh, diplomats. Is, is full-spectrum dominance then uh, the Defense Department take over of U.S. foreign policy? And is that part of the reason why that we seem to be in these endless wars, that the Department of Defense is in charge right. of foreign policy? 
Well, I think the Department of Defense certainly took a leading role in formulating foreign policy uh, in the first decade of, of the 20th century. But that phrase that you use there, full spectrum dominance, that was something um, that the Department of Defense used to describe a spectrum of warfare in the 21st century that um, that included not just conventional warfare operations, but went all the way through to irregular warfare as well. So full spectrum dominance meant being able to dominate the entire spectrum of conflict all the way through to uh, irregular warfare and including forms of hybrid warfare in the middle as well. And so what I argue in my book is that essentially um, this, the other departments and agencies in the US government were really mobilized to try to serve this objective of full spectrum dominance. And part of that was being able to fight these irregular warfare conflicts for which USAID and the State Department, uh, in which those departments allegedly had a role when uh, warfare, in, in irregular warfare, for instance, when it is more population-centric, does yeah. that make the population any more vulnerable to the violence of war? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that it necessarily makes them any more vulnerable. I think, um, you know, the population is, is always vulnerable. Um, even when the objective is to try to just physically control the territory rather than trying to uh, win hearts and minds. Um, it's just, uh, they're just vulnerable for, for different reasons, I think. In, in irregular warfare, you know, they are the focus of the operations, but what often happens in conventional warfare is that you see a reliance on overwhelming military force, which unfortunately ends up targeting civilians as well as military targets. The United States, the public here in the U.S., has a very low tolerance for military servicemen and women being killed during war. Did the decision to pursue irregular warfare have anything to do with limiting the number of U.S. war dead to make military action a more palatable policy for the public? Right. That's a great question. I'm actually not sure that it did. I think policymakers, when they began to think about how they might use irregular techniques, I, I think this was happening really... In, in the immediate aftermath of 9/11, it took some time to come to fruition. But I think if, if you, um, I think you can see the roots of it in the immediate post 9/11 period. And at that point, you didn't really have that public fatigue anywhere, you know, in, in the U.S. or in Europe, with war. And I think uh, policymakers were initially attracted to this type of warfare because they just thought that it was genuinely the right way to respond to the new types of security threats that they were seeing in the 21st century. We started at the very beginning of this conversation. We were talking about Vietnam, and I want to get that back yeah. to that for just one in just a second. But first, I was just curious: Does irregular warfare include economic sanctions like those against, say, Venezuela? Are economic sanctions today part of the irregular warfare employed by the U.S. Uh, still to this day within some concept of full spectrum dominance of the world? Right. I think um, I wouldn't say that economic sanctions are a part of irregular warfare because they're not um, a tactic that the military would be using on the ground, if you like. But they certainly may form part of a broader coercive national strategy uh, that might target a country like Venezuela, for example. You mentioned writer and historical researcher David Fitzgerald and how he points to a peculiar 
peculiarly uh, American dual narrative. Boy, I got to have trouble with that word. A long tradition of small wars and at the same time a disavowal of their lessons. As Fitzgerald observes, these wars have not lingered in the military's historical memory. The archetypal example is Vietnam. Though certainly not a small war, Vietnam required, at least in part, the tactics and skills of counterinsurgency against the guerrilla forces of the National Liberation Front. The loss of the war in Southeast Asia was so traumatic for the U.S. Army that it buried the lessons, expunged the defeat from its collective consciousness, and regrouped around its favored paradigm of industrial interstate war in Central Europe against the Soviets. Why not learn the lessons from the past of of Vietnam? To you, what explains that denial of the past and refusal to examine to make certain the same thing doesn't happen in the future? Right. I I think, um, and I'm really taking from David Fitzgerald's work here, I, I think the loss of uh, Vietnam was so traumatic for the U.S. military, and um, it was difficult for them to understand at the time why they had not been able to defeat this ragtag guerrilla force, um, the might of the U.S. Army, which on paper looked so much stronger than these guerrillas. Um, I think there was an expectation going in that it would be a kind of easy victory, and it seemed as though, you know, regardless of what the U.S. did, uh, they just didn't know how to defeat the Viet Cong. And uh, rather than kind of learning those lessons, the response really from the military was just to kind of turn away from, because this had been such a traumatic defeat, was just really to turn away from it and almost to stop teaching things like counterinsurgency that actually had been required in Vietnam. So, um, you know, in hindsight, it seems like it it was a very short-sighted thing to do. But at the time, I think there was a belief that actually, you know, the real mission of the armed forces is actually conventional war. Uh, We need to be preparing for the most likely war that we're going to fight, which is a war in Central Europe against the Soviet Union. And so I, I think part of it was just down to what they believed was the most likely war that they were next going to fight. And part of it was just down to the fact that this had been so traumatic uh, and kind of inexplicable uh, that they just turned away from it. You point out how analyst Daniel Wurls, author of Politics of Defense, demonstrates the continued reliance on military spending to stimulate the domestic economy goes some way to explaining why the state-centric model of equipment-heavy conventional warfare endured in U.S. defense planning into the 21st century. Is irregular warfare then less equipment-heavy, less military-industrial complex-friendly? And does irregular warfare get any less support from elected politicians because it is not as equipment-heavy? So often we hear here in the United States analysts and critics saying that the reason Mm -hmm. that politicians always vote for uh, military expenditures going up here in the U.S. is because they have so much uh, spending in all the different congressional districts, and so they Mm -hmm. win over the politicians. So does irregular warfare get any less support from elected politicians because it's not as equipment heavy. I don't think it does get less support, actually. I mean, you, you are quite right that it doesn't, it, it's not a form of war that can be used to stimulate the domestic economy in the same way that conventional war can, because it's not equipment heavy. It's much more reliant on people and people skills, actually. But I don't think it's had any less support from policymakers. Uh, I, I think that the Bush and Obama administrations actually did a very good job of um, providing a real security rationale for the turn towards irregular warfare. And uh, it has always been a type of warfare that was cheap, if you like. 
Um, so it wasn't as difficult to fund it, I think. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there are, there are some some uh, some uh, examples in the book that I give of, of Congress not being willing to fund these initiatives. But for the most part, I think uh, they were relatively supportive uh, of the irregular warfare agenda. And the good news for the Bush and Obama administrations was it wasn't that expensive either. I was asking you earlier if economic sanctions against Venezuela were irregular warfare, and you say as they're not being committed by the military, it's not necessarily irregular warfare. And that, that made me think, does irregular warfare weaponize information? Should uh, should weaponizing information, especially weaponizing misinformation or disinformation, should that be seen as acts of irregular warfare? For instance, in interfering in other nations' elections, is that irregular warfare? I think it certainly can be. I mean, psychological warfare is, is a core component of uh, irregular warfare. Uh, so the U.S. military developed a whole bunch of techniques related to um, civil affairs and propaganda. And so that kind of intervention, I think, where we see it taking place, it, it may very well be part of a broader strategy of irregular warfare. At the same time, I think some of these aspects of irregular warfare can be used kind of independently, and they're not necessarily part of a broader war, if you like. So propaganda is not necessarily always part of a broader irregular warfare strategy, but it can be. We are speaking with Maria Ryan. She is a historian and author of Full Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare and the War on Terror. She's also author of 2010's Neoconservatism and the New American Century. Maria is assistant professor in American history at the University of Nottingham. You write the U.S. presence in the peripheral theaters of the war on terror was often determined by the extent to which ruling elites and other nations were willing or not to cooperate. This is where your focus of in your studies, you focus on irregular warfare being implemented at the periphery, not in Iraq and Afghanistan, but the areas right after the ta attacks on 9-11, where it wasn't reported as much. You write mm. that whereas President Gloria Macabagal Arroyo of the Philippines pu publicly courted U.S. intervention and set the parameters of joint operations. Operations. U.S. overtures were less welcome in Malaysia and Indonesia, notwithstanding its conventional and increasingly irregular military strengths. Washington could not always impose its agenda on these regions, and where it did achieve its objectives, this was usually the result of mutual perceptions of shared interests rather than a unilateral impression of American power. What kind of countries <coughs> invited the United States in, and what kind of countries did not invite the United States in, in this war within the periphery, irregular warfare within the periphery that the United States was engaged in shortly after 9-11? So there are some countries that have um, a very pro-American government or where the elite is very pro-American. And the Philippines is a very good example of one of those countries. The government of Gloria Macapagal Arroyo that you mentioned was very pro-American, very much wanted uh, American help to deal with the Abu Sayyaf group, uh, the separatist group, uh, an Islamic militant group in the southern Philippines. And what you see after 9-11 is she is just as eager to have the Bush administration come to the Philippines as the Bush administration is to go to the Philippines. But there are other countries, neighboring countries in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia, 
for example, that were much more hesitant about working with the Americans. Um, the Americans tried to impose something called the Regional Maritime Security Initiative to stop uh, terrorism and piracy in the Strait of Malacca. But this was um, dropped when Indonesia and Malaysia pulled out of it because of the fact that there were going to be American special operations forces permanently located uh, in the Strait of Malacca, or that certainly that was um, the rumor coming out of Washington anyway. Uh, and so that initiative collapsed because Indonesia and Malaysia just, just were not prepared uh, to allow such an overt American presence in their backyard, really, um, whereas the Arroyo government in the Philippines was very welcoming to the Americans, even though there's quite a lot of popular opposition in the Philippines to an American military presence in the country. You write that irregular warfare has been ineffective in stabilizing the peripheral areas of the war on terror. In Somalia, the U.S. president contributed to the emergence of a violent new Islamist group, al-Shabaab. In the Philippines, as you were saying, acts of terror by the Abu Sayyaf group increased during the 12-year U.S. presence. Ultimately, the U.S. strategy toward the peripheral theaters was fundamentally flawed. The political objective of stabilizing weak states was misconceived since state failure is not the main catalyst of the emergence of terrorism, which was what the United States assumption and presumption was. If right. it isn't that the that state failure is the main catalyst for the emergence of terrorism, if that's not the case, mm. why did the U.S. believe state failure did cause terrorism? Or were they not as much concerned about terrorism as they were just concerned about these states failing strategically, individually on their own? Well, I think um, the model for this theory was Afghanistan, which obviously was uh, a weak state, a failing state, and did tolerate the presence of bin Laden and his network in, in the late 1990s. So it is it is true that you know we have seen an example of this, an important example. But it, I think it's just too much of a stretch to say that terrorism is always caused everywhere by weak and failing states and the consequences of weak and failing states. So in the, Philipp in the Philippines, for example, um, you have an, an ongoing separatist conflict that goes all the way back to the Spanish colonization of the Philippines and the fact that they were never able to colonize the, the southern uh, part of the archipelago. And uh, that part remains Muslim, whereas the rest of the country was converted to Christianity. Georgia is another uh, country that I look at, um, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. And there, there was a really complex situation where you had um, Islamic militants fighting Russia in Chechnya, uh, who were taking refuge in a part of Georgia called the Pankisi Gorge. So again, um, very a very sort of um, very complex local explanations for the emergence of terrorism in in these regions, and it's it's very problematic to just say. Uh, it's always caused by a weak and failing state as it was in Afghanistan. Are there other more strategic region, reasons why these peripheral areas were uh, a concern for the Bush administration? Were they using the war on terror in any way to, well, exploit the war on terror and uh, pursue other global military strategic objectives? Well, I think so. I, I think the reason um, that places like Georgia and the Philippines and sub-Saharan Africa became important to the Bush administration after 9-11 is because there were already 
existing U.S. interests there, which were imperiled by the potential emergence of terrorism in those regions. Uh, so, for example, uh, Georgia hosts a very important uh, oil pipeline that brings oil from the Caspian Sea out to the Mediterranean. Uh, the, the route of that pipeline was very important to the Americans. Uh, they didn't want it to go through Russia uh, because the reform process in Russia had, had kind of gone wrong in the 1990s. Um, and they didn't want it to go through Iran either, obviously, because the U.S. doesn't recognize the Iranian government. They wanted the pipeline uh, to go through a friendly pro-U.S. country. And so Georgia became very important to them. And, and the Clinton administration in the 1990s expended a lot of diplomatic energy and military aid and, and foreign aid uh, on cultivating ties with the Georgian government for this re reason. There is um, uh, a similar story in the Gulf of Guinea. That's one of the reasons why policymakers were concerned about stability in that part of Africa after 9-11, uh, because of the fact that this is also uh, an energy-producing area. Uh, it, was, it, it had been predicted that the U.S. would be importing 25% of its foreign oil from the Gulf of Guinea uh, by the year 2020. So this was viewed also as, as another kind of geopolitically important region, and the stability of that region was imperiled by the possible emergence of terror there. So is the global war on terror, as it was known, as it should probably, even though it's a misleading title that we'll get into in a second, is the global war on terror then, uh, did the Bush administration and subsequently the Obama administration turn it into the global war to protect oil? Well, um, I think it would be. I think it would be. It would be going a little bit too far to say that it's just about protecting oil and nothing else. The, the Philippines is not an oil-producing country, um, and I think the the interest in in the Philippines from the U.S. perspective um, was about being able to uh, have a have a military base there to project power into the Pacific region. I think what happens in in um, places like Georgia and in the Gulf of Guinea and also, of course, in Iraq is that you get this kind of convergence, if you like, um, between energy security and counterterrorism. And so the war on terror is a way to kind of pursue both of those things at the same time. And both of them, I think, uh, are viewed as real concerns, real security concerns by the Bush administration. You're right that while Afghanistan was the opening front in the war on terror, peripheral fronts developed from the from late 2001 onward across sub-Saharan Africa and the Philippines and in Georgia and the wider Caspian Sea region. Now, these aren't the kinds of uh, battles or fights or wars that we saw reported in the mainstream establishment news here within the United States. Is irregular warfare more difficult for the media to report on because it's kind of a slow drip? It doesn't have the sensational effects of traditional warfare. And does that make it so we don't recognize the fact that we are in fact at war? Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, this kind of warfare, it can, especially at the beginning, be very l low intensity. And I think that's certainly the case in, in the Philippines, uh, in Georgia, uh, across sub-Saharan Africa. It was really like a kind of low intensity war. And so it wasn't, as you said, it wasn't widely reported. And I'm sure that most people, you know, the idea that the U.S. was waging a war in the Philippines after 9-11, I'm sure wouldn't, wouldn't make a lot of sense to most people. And, and it did attract the same kind of media coverage because it isn't 
it, you know, when we think about warfare, we still in the West tend to think about conventional warfare and big bombs and World War II and irregular warfare is much more low-key. It can become much more violent, as we saw in Iraq. Uh, but I think it, in these cases that I'm looking at in the book, the peripheral fronts of the war on terror, it did start off in a very kind of low-key way, and it, and it didn't attract the same attention. And you write about uh, American conservative author William S. Lind and his colleagues talking about this kind of concept of fourth-generation warfare uh, back in 1989. And he mentions the distinction between war and peace will be blurred to the vanishing point, and the distinction between civilian and military may disappear. To what mm. extent has that already happened? Has war been normalized because it is now irregular warfare? I think... Um where we see irregular warfare waged with great intensity, we do tend to see um, that the distinction between um, between war and peace gets somewhat flattened. So it, it used to be, you know, if you go back to the old colonial wars, that men went off to serve in the army and they went off to the, fr the to the front, and the war was only fought at the front. And most ordinary people, you know, never actually got to see war or what was going on. Uh, there was a particular battlefront and it was geographically exclusive. But these days, war kind of takes place. If you're living in a war society, war is taking place all around you. Um, it's not on some kind of secluded battlefront. It might be taking place on city streets, for example, and uh, civilians tend to be caught up in the heart of it in a way that they never used to be. You point out that the turn toward irregular warfare was anchored in a false and misleading analysis of the root causes of irregular conflict in general and Islamist terrorism in particular. The belief that these problems were chiefly the result of weak and failing states, as we mentioned, was superficial and ahistorical. It was superficial because every instance of armed conflict is unique to its time and place. Every insurgency plays out in a particular historical context and is shaped by specific ethnic geographic geographic, resource, ideological, and strategic factors that an American military historian Donald or Douglas Porch's words defy a formulaic approach. You add the weak states theory created a one-size-fits-all model that elided national and local speci specificities. It was ahistorical because there is so little, little evidence that weak states have ever been the principal root cause of terrorism or insurgency. So why did it work? If there's so little evidence backing up the claim, why was it accepted by the media and repeated over and over? And again, the public then accepted it without question. Mm. Well, I think that um, irregular warfare um, offers a kind of very seductive model for policymakers and probably for military practitioners as well, because it gives you a kind of like checklist of things. Uh, if you do this, this and this, you will stabilize this country and you will have won the hearts and minds of the population. And wherever you uh, confront a weak or failing state, these are the things that you need to do. And so it's very attractive in that sense. And I, I can understand why policymakers might have wanted to believe this. Uh, certainly, if you have professional members of the military telling you uh, that this is what history teaches us about warfare and about irregular warfare and how you successfully fight these irregular wars, then I can understand why um, policymakers and, and members of the media might have actually accepted that. I, I think um, I, I'm not sure that it got the kind of public coverage in the media uh, that 
conventional wars get. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that the public necessarily know an awful lot about irregular warfare. So I'm kind of reluctant to say that the public sort of bought all of this. Um, I, I think probably most members of the public just don't actually know that much about irregular warfare. You write the framework of the global war on terror exacerbated this formulaic approach, the application of the global war on terror narrative to a series of disparate conflicts and diverse areas of instability resulted in a simplistic conflation of the local and the global, treating the separatist conflict in the southern Philippines as merely one front in the war on terror, overlooks centuries of Bangsamoro nationalism and has been the oxygen for violent groups in the Sulu archipelago. The challenges facing people across sub-Saharan Africa include human security issues like food and water scarcity, state violence against indigenous populations, HIV AIDS, job creation, the debt burden and environmental degradation that a formulaic approach kind of erases. Does the global war on terror framework obfuscate all the individual wars, making us less aware that we are at war and say, Yemen, can we not see the trees <laughs> for the forest when it comes to global war on terror, not recognizing how global, how many places it's happening because we see it as just one big global war on terror? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that that's part of it, that, that, that we do just view it as one big global war on terror uh, and that it has all these different fronts. Um, but we don't necessarily know that much about what's going on uh, in on each of those fronts. But I, I think above all, though, that it's it's just not helpful to obfuscate in the way that you suggested and to say that these are all part of the same war on terror. Because actually, if, if you look at the specifics of the local circumstances, circumstances in these different fronts, what you see is that actually the violence that's occurring there has quite different causes. And so it's quite problematic to say they're all part of one big war on terror and they're all caused by the problems associated with weak and failing states. And so if we just simply implement our irregular warfare uh, checklist, we will stabilize all of these places. I think that's very problematic. I think what we need to do is really to try to disaggregate these conflicts and look at them uh, as unique conflicts um, and, and try not to think about this broader framework of the global war on terror, but to just look at what look at these conflicts as, um, as unique manifestations of violence and try to understand each one of them on their own terms. Is this formulaic approach, is this simply neoliberal depoliticization of everything, the refusal to consider the political, to take agency away from those who actually have agency? Are, were Bush's actions merely a reflection of their era? Or, or does erasing politics from analysis, is the, is the bigger point to erase any U.S. responsibility or complicity for terrorism, whatever region is examined? So is this about simply a reflection of the time and neoliberalism and the depoliticization of everything? Or is this about the U.S. trying to avoid responsibility or complicity for whatever horrors are happening in the region where terrorism has beset itself? Well, I think it could be a, um, a bit of both of those things. I, I certainly agree that this um, irregular warfare checklist is it, it offers a really depoliticized narrative of conflict um it it rather than engaging with the unique specificities of each uh each cause each manifestation of political violence and trying to look at the unique political causes of each case um what you get with irregular warfare is this depoliticized narrative that says actually uh this is always caused by problems associated with weak and failing states. And we don't need to look any further than that. But actually, I think we, we do need to look further than that. And that what you tend to find is that in each case, wherever you have violence, you have 
uh, a political context that explains that violence. And sometimes that political context might be something that uh, members of the US government m might not really want to hear, might not be particularly comfortable because, um, you know, perhaps it's problems associated with US foreign policy that might be um, contributing to the cause of that violence. Did the global war on terror framework then legitimate those actors who wanted to actually have a global war on terror? Did the Bush administration framework lead to an exacerbation of the problem of a global war on terror? I think it did. I mean, I think it's probably quite well known now uh, that in Iraq, the the invasion there, the US-UK invasion, did exacerbate the problem of terrorism and that there wasn't really a problem with terrorism in Iraq b before the invasion. And I remember in 2006, the CIA releasing a report saying that as a result of the invasion, Iraq had become a cause celebre for jihadists. And I think we do see something similar in these peripheral fronts of the war on terror. So if you look, for example, at the statistics in the Philippines, in 2002, there were 17 attacks by the Abu Sayyaf group. But by 2016, in 2016, there were 74. So a very big increase there. Um, clearly, the US intervention was not working. Um, it certainly didn't um, it didn't prevent the AS, the, the Abu Sayyaf group from carrying out these attacks. And I think you see a very similar picture actually in sub-Saharan Africa as well, that um, what we see is actually the growth of these uh, extremist groups like Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, for example, or Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And I don't want to suggest that US policy is the sole cause of the growth of these groups, because it's not. But it's one contributing factor, I think. So this, this idea that the war on terror has made terrorism worse. I, I think it's something, I think that does hold uh, whatever front of, of the war on terror that we look at, even these smaller peripheral fronts. Does the inclusion of irregular warfare within full spectrum dominance in any way play a role in what we are seeing to be endless wars, forever wars? I think so. Um, I think irregular warfare kind of makes it easier to go to war in a sense because uh, you're not relying on major uh, deploy a major deployment of ground troops. Uh, you're really looking at deploying smaller numbers of special operations forces. And um, but by the end of the um, Bush administration, special operations forces had a presence in about 60 countries. So, um, you know, that's that's a lot. And I, I think because irregular warfare is not uh, does not require the same number of troop deployments, it does make it a bit easier um, to open up these smaller fronts. One last question for you, Maria. We have been speaking with historian Maria Ryan, author of Full Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare and the War on Terror. Maria is assistant professor in American history at the University of Nottingham. She's also author of 2010's Neoconservatism and the New American Century. A collection of essays co-edited with Maria's colleague, Bevan Sewell, was published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2017 as Foreign Policy at the Periphery, the Shifting Margins of U.S. International Relations Since World War II. One last 
last question for you, Maria. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, <laughs> you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. So Maria, <laughs> you write the irregular warfare approach that Washington developed after 9-11 went far beyond defensive measures designed to hedge against an asymmetric attack. Instead, full-spectrum dominance was an imperial vision that combined an offensive approach to both irregular challenges and conventional military affairs with the ultimate objective of maintaining American primacy on a global scale for as long as practicably possible. Is that imperial approach, is that why not only the wars continue, but why irregular warfare seemed to have failed in Iraq? Are the wars continuing because the military strategy post 9-11, including later irregular warfare, is an imperial project, a project to maintain, if not attain, empire? Is it right now the United States versus the world? Well, I think this project of full spectrum dominance, I think, uh, was an imperial project. And imperialism requires not only the projection of power, but also the imposition of power, because in, to, to be imperial um, requires uh, exercising a certain amount of control. And so I, I think ultimately what tends to happen uh, when you have irregular wars is, is that uh, that projection of power is contested uh, by the people on the other end. They don't necessarily always welcome the intervention. Sometimes they do. For example, in Georgia, uh, that intervention was very much supported by the public. But in other places, they don't. Um, U.S. intervention or intervention by any country actually is, is not always welcome. Maria, I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. This is a fascinating book and has made me Thank you, Chuck. and made me view the global war on terror in a completely different way. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate this book. Thank you so much for being Thanks on our show. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, wait, what the hell has the CIA been up to? Wait, what the hell has the CIA been up to all this time? And you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email either myself or Alex, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. The person who has the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell tru trucker cap, which you can see at thisishell.com right now when you click on support. Alex, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell yet? Oh, yeah. What the hell has the CIA been up to this whole time? Jeremy T. says convincing American liberals that they are their ally against Trump. <laughs> That's a good one. Dan T. says they've been rewatching old reruns of The Man from Uncle because reasons. <laughs> Zach N. says studying Pete Buttigieg. I'm so mad I, can, I know how to pronounce that guy's name now. <laughs> studying Pete Buttigieg within the context of his lineage as the son of a Gramsci scholar. I don't even know if I pronounced that guy's name right. Yeah. In hopes of understanding Marxism in U.S. politics, only to realize that Mayor Pete's Harvard, Oxford, and McKinsey and Company connections effectively make him indistinguishable from everyone else at Langley and therefore useless to examine. In other words, <laughs> pretending to work like everyone else. <laughs> Jack W. says various writing campaigns to bring 24 back to TV. They did actually, I think, too. Michael L. says, nodding sympathetically with Huey Lewis's past desires. What's the CIA been up to this whole time? Dan K. says, turning the frogs gay. Pete V. says, rewatching their favorite documentary, Get Smart. Jessica B. says, culturally inappropriate advertising. All right. Jesse W. says, enhanced interrogating uh, no one in particular for no particular reason. And finally, Fabio L. says, 
making the FBI look good by comparison. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com, or alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell wins a This Is Hell trucker cap, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. It's time for listener feedback and your email sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. You know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Uh, it looks like we're only about to have time to get to one right now, and it's from Ben. Hey there, Chuck. Great seeing you again last Friday at This Is Hell Office Hours. I had a blast. I just remembered you asked me to send you my email. So here you go. Hope you had a great weekend, and I look forward to coming by and hanging with you and other This Is Hell Associates fans, etc. again very soon. Take it easy, Ben. Thanks, Ben. It was great hanging out with you as well, and everyone who joined us during This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that is more of a think and drink now happening on Fridays, Fridays beginning at 6, and going to, well, whenever I stumbled out last week. I would thank everyone who dropped by. I remember talking to Mark from Big Jones and Lee and Ben and Bradley and Jesse and Johnny. I know Wally, Pete, and Christine were there, but I don't remember much else because... Did you know that broth has no calories in it? I've been drinking 12 ounces of turkey broth made from leftover holiday turkey for a couple of weeks every day. I know it's good for me, it's nutritious, but I had no idea it had absolutely zero caloric content until the morning after office hours last week. So I thought I had enough food in my stomach to absorb whatever alcohol I was going to drink. But I did not, and I got hammered fast. I stumbled out the back gate instead of running the gauntlet through the bar that was packed. And I think office hours are going to be a lot more fun on Fridays now, seeing as how Carrie's Lounge, where we hold them every week, 2251 West Devon, often has live music on Friday nights. But I had to sneak out to avoid any stumbling embarrassment. Apparently, I went home, and by 9.15, I'd face-planted into my bed at home, and I woke up the next morning with all my clothes still on from office hours so I know things didn't go well. However, now that I think about it, there may have been a stop at the corner of Mexican restaurant because I seem to remember a burrito being involved with the end of the night. I can't remember. Although there was salsa all over my shirt when I woke up. So Ben and everyone who joins me joins us at This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon this Friday beginning at 6 p.m. In Chicago's little India neighborhood, I will have already eaten dinner, which will include a meal that actually contains calories so I can hang out longer with all of you. We'll get to some more listener feedback later this week. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, message us via Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex, who's on Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Uh, I'll tell you that, but first I want to know, what's your uh, go-to burrito order at El Pueblo, which I'm guessing is where you went? Uh, Carne asada, but uh, if it's not carne asada, it's El Pastor. It just depends on how I feel at the time. But it's generally carne asada with no lettuce because I hate getting iceberg lettuce inside of my burrito. It's just gross. Wednesday, 10 o'clock, 
Adnar Usmani will be on to talk about his Catalyst journal paper, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out all of the answers to this week's question from hell and to find out if you've won. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I want to thank Maria Ryan for being our guest on today's show. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>